This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. This morning, I want to talk about us, you being recipients of God's grace. We've sung about it this morning, and I felt that God, I was wondering what to preach about this morning, and I felt God really stirred this on me. And I'm going to base uh, my text this morning, my reading this morning, from the book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter, was it initially called 1 Corinthians? We call it 1 Corinthians. And before we get to that letter... What I want to remind you, some of you, is your schoolboy or schoolgirl geography. Is that okay? So we're going to do a little bit of geography now. So hopefully behind me now, there's a picture of the Western Mediterranean Sea. This is often in the news now. I'm hoping that at least once a week you cry when you watch the news because people are being put on rubber dinghies, rubber boats, and being pushed out to sea, hoping that they will get from mainland Turkey to Greece. Uh, if you're not crying about it, please ask God to give you tenderness. So this part of the world uh, is uh, where we're looking at. This is 2,000 years ago, so this is the height of the Roman Empire. We've got Rome at the top there in Italy. Some of your geography now is slightly coming back into focus. We've got Rome at the top, centre of the known world, and then we've got kind of uh, Egypt at the bottom there. And all around that rim on the right-hand side of the screen, there's trade. People are moving to and from Rome. And right in the middle of that is Corinth. You can't see from here, but right at the bottom of Greece, there's an isthmus, which is basically a land bridge between the two big pieces of land. And in the middle there is Corinth. And as you can see, it's now in the middle of this trade route. Remember, this is a time when uh, you can't sail direct from uh, Cairo to Italy. You're on sailing ships. But because uh, boats aren't reliable, there's storms, shipwrecks, so you hug the coast. And as you bring trade up to the centre of the world, Rome, going through Corinth makes sense because there's an isthmus. You can cut off that corner of the boot of Greece. The prevailing winds are rushing down from Italy and that right at the bottom of Greece there is, lo- is known for its shipwreck. So if you are doing trade and you come into Corinth, you can shortcut by jumping across the land bridge. Why is that important to us? Well, right at Corinth there, which where that arrow is now, 2,000 years ago, uh, a settlement arose because there's this massive rock formation called the Acro-Corinth. And on that is a water source. So there's this defensible position. Where you've got a defensible position with a water source, and that's at a crossroads of trading, a flourishing settlement springs up. But more than just a flourishing settlement, it's one that can be defended. So what happens, trade increasingly starts to go through Corinth. 
Then over time, as trade goes through, people realising that as trade is going through, people are hanging around, waiting for boats to be dragged across the isthmus or their cargo to be transported across the isthmus. People are hanging around, and as they're hanging around, they need places to stay, um, they need to be entertained, they need to be fed, they probably want to worship. So Corinth becomes this hugely cosmopolitan place. Because as people are hanging around, that attracts other people who want to start their businesses. And as they start businesses, they start hanging around and their faiths, their preferences start to take root. And so you get not just a cosmopolitan city where loads of people are turning up, servicing the travellers, suddenly they're living there now and their religious beliefs start to take root. So in Corinth now, we've got a place that's cosmopolitan, that in one sense has lots of different religions in place. And for trade to flourish, people become very liberal. They start having not having strong views about things because that's bad for business. So now we've got our highly international settlement where there's lots of religious preferences. It's very, very liberal. And then you've got sailors hanging around for their boats to be unloaded or not. And then a saying starts happening, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. When people are away from home, they're anonymous, they start to follow some other desires that they have. And it becomes sexually very immoral. So it's liberal, it's immoral, it's cosmopolitan, and it feels anonymous. So Corinth becomes this massive as it were, melting pot of different cultures, different ideas, people hanging around with time on their hands. And what we find is that in that environment, the Apostle Paul comes and proclaims Christ. He starts goes to Athens. He's not in Athens for long. He heads to Corinth because he realises there's lots of things going on there. One of the things that goes on in, in Corinth is the Isthmian Games. This happens every two years when it seems most of Greece empties out, it's second only to Olympic Games, most of Greece empty out, and they pitch up for two months of uh, every two years in that place, and there's nowhere to stay, so they need tents. So Paul's a tent maker. So he goes there because he knows, along with Priscilla and Aquila, who've been kicked out for Rome, they're Jews, probably heading back, they're tent makers as well. Go to Corinth because the Isthmian Games are on. People need tents repaired. Uh, they need to stay in. So suddenly, Paul can now form a gospel coalition with Priscilla and Aquila. It all makes sense. So whilst he's there, he goes to the synagogue, proclaims Christ, as is often happens. Synagogue ruler Crispus is all axating. He gets saved. They get another synagogue ruler in there called Sosthenes. He gets in place. The gospel takes root, there's a riot, Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, he gets beaten, even though it seems he's a, a Jew, and he gets beaten because they're so frustrated that the gospel is taken root through uh, Paul and his preaching. And Jesus talks to him in the middle of the night and says to him, don't leave the city, I've got many people here for you. And so Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months, this kind of real hotbed of liberal thinking and sexual immorality and people worshipping all sorts of gods and idols and now there's a massive meat market to service the idol worship of these different religions there and you can buy meat in those markets cheaper and so the Christians start getting confused. So Paul, after 18 months, he leaves on and he's left behind them a thriving church full of the Holy Spirit. But over time, as often the cases, churches can lose their way in environments that are incredibly liberal which is why, like in Islam, uh, in Turkey, they've moved the capital to Ankara because seaports, there's too much influence on that. You want to be in land where there's less people, and you can get purer when you're in land. So like in Muslims, they go for the capitals right in the middle of deserts because you can keep it pure. In seaports, there's too many people travelling through. So Paul, after a few years 
he now finds himself in Ephesus and he gets some report from Chloe's people, a household in Corinth. He gets some reports from them and there's some problems in the church. So he writes the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. When it was first written, there weren't chapters and verses. We've added that in the later years so we can look at it and study it better. He pens a letter to this young church and it's that what we're going to look at today. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? But very helpful because many of us were just unaware of what's going on behind these books of the Bible, originally letters that were written. What was Paul writing into? What was the environment in which he was involved? So if you've got a Bible here this morning, please could you open it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through to 3. Uh, if you haven't brought one, if you haven't got one on your phone, it will come up on the screen behind me. I use the ESV version. The reason I do that is because there's less revisions of it. I used to use the NIV, but there's so many different versions now. I read from one version, they project a different version, and on your phone be another different version. So with the ESV, it's just easier in terms of there's less change. So we can all read one translation of that. So that's why I'm reading from the ESV. It's not because I like being the extra, using the extra smug version, which some people call the ESV. You just feel holier using the ESV. We use it in reading just because it's, it's the most stable translation we've got at the moment. So just practically, so we're all looking at the same words. So let me pray And then we shall start. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here amongst us. I thank you for our time of singing and a sense of you amongst us as we sing. Thank you for those great prophetic words. Help me to interact with them as I preach now. And I want to pray uh, for every heart in here this morning to be tender to what you're doing, Holy Spirit, that you would stir them even now. I pray for heart rates to increase even now. And that you, Holy Spirit, would stir and encourage and build and strengthen and convict as appropriate. So come, Holy Spirit, be amongst us. We pray even for the children now in their groups. Thank you for this guy leading for the first time today. Let your spirit rest heavily upon him, that the children and everyone in groups today would encounter you. I pray the parents would be blessed because their children have been invested in and the Holy Spirit has come upon their children this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 1 to 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Remember, he's writing this from Ephesus. Sosthenes is alongside him. Sosthenes was the synagogue ruler, probably who was beaten in Acts 18. Synagogue ruler, he gets beaten up somehow now. He's saved And he's with Paul in Ephesus, so he's caught up in the authorship of this. It's incredible, isn't it? The second synagogue ruler in Corinth, it seems, has come to the gospel. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his letter, his entreaty to this church that he established through his proclaiming Christ. He writes to them, and it's very easy to see within the first few verses of this letter, what's at the centre of his attention? What's at the centre of his thinking, his imagination, his planning, the centre of his waking thoughts? Uh, Presumably when he wakes up in the morning, what's in his mind as he dreams? The centre of that is Jesus. He mentions him four times in three verses. 
Uh, maybe sometimes listen to yourself when you're with your friends. What do you mention four times in three verses? I mean, I'm so convicted by this man. He's so focused. His greeting is Jesus. Paul wanted the Corinthians to have Jesus at the centre of their lives. Uh, for them to be caught up in this great movement of God's love and God's power. Just like Sosthenes, the ex-synagogue ruler of Corinth, now with Paul in Ephesus. I mean, get the weight of that. They would have understood that. Oh, this is Sosthenes, Acts 18. We beat him up because the gospel was taking root and we thought he presumably wasn't doing enough. Now suddenly Sosthenes has left Corinth and gone with Paul, felt compelled by God, caught up in that. It's at the centre of Sosthenes' life, it seems. This great mission. Paul wants them to know that God has set you apart. He's sanctified you. And they're to cooperate in that. Uh, in Reading, I've got three suits. I should be getting one of my suits out next week because one of my suits has been sanctified. It's been set apart for a special purpose. And that is for weddings and funerals. It's my best suit. It's a sanctified suit. And in the same way, in the same way, we're a sanctified people. You've been set apart for a purpose. You're not supposed to be a work of art. You're not supposed to be something that's beautiful but actually has no function. Pure art has no function. We're not supposed to be a work of art. We've been set apart for a purpose. We've been sanctified. We have been set apart. We have been put apart for Christ. We're supposed to be about his purposes, his business. When I became a Christian in 1989, I learned a song, didn't have any Christian heritage, which went something like this. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. And we, we sang it. We, we just had no, I thought, oh yes, I'm about the kingdom of God. I, I knew that God had put in my heart that I was going to be a pastor. Didn't know what that meant, but I knew that was a call upon me. And Paul is the same. He wants the church to know what they've been set apart for. It's for a purpose. It's something we're to cooperate in. It's not something that's done to us. It's something that we embrace. We make ourselves available for. And Paul wants to say, hey, listen, Sosthenes has been caught up in this. You too have been set apart. You've called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and our Lord. There's one church, and you've been caught up in that for Christ Jesus. God has set them apart. They're sanctified. They've been made holy. No longer in the dominion of darkness, no longer under Adam. Now they've crossed over into the kingdom of light. Their new federal head is Jesus Christ. They're now in him, found in him. Paul wants them to know that. And he goes on into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through to 9. He says this to this crazy church. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will be revealed. He is coming back. There will be a day when there will be a trumpet sound. And somehow all of us on planet Earth will look up and see Jesus at the same time. I don't get the physics, but that's what the Bible says. We'll look up and we will see him and we'll be made like him. We'll be caught up with him. He is coming back. Make no mistake about that. Jesus is returning. A day will come. He will be revealed. That has to be in our minds. As we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Corinthians. I don't know whether you've read it recently. Maybe if it's in your Bible of the year, maybe you did it last year, maybe you've never read it before. If you've never read it before, if you're unfamiliar with the book, this is Paul being at his diplomatic best. I mean, he's been hugely diplomatic now. He cannot thank the Corinthians for their faith, as he could for the church in Rome. Roman 1 verse 8, Paul says, I thank God for your faith. He can't thank the Corinthians for their faith. Nor can he thank them for their partnership in the gospel, as you could for those at Philippi. In Philippians 1 verse 5 says, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel. He can't say that to the Corinthians. He can't say to them, I thank God for your faith and love, as he could for the church plant at Colossae. Colossians 1 verse 4. He, he can't do that. Nor can he thank God for their faith, their love and their hope, as he could for the church in Thessaloniki. As he can in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He can't do any of that The best that he can offer is thanks that grace has been given to them. And that is not meant as a compliment. So can you imagine meeting someone, or over dinner and our kids are mucking around, and you say to them, Johnny, I thank God that he has been kind to you. I mean, that's not a massive compliment. That's like basically saying, I can't think of anything good about you to thank God for, so I'm going to thank God that he's been kind to you. That's what he's saying to them. You see, the Corinthians, and this is where I want us to dial in, the Corinthians had received a great deal of grace, yet their response to that grace was deeply flawed. You see, in this church, there were divisions. They quarrelled about which apostle to follow. Some said, I follow the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? He preached here, got us going. Another says, oh, no, no, I follow Apollos. No, 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 I follow Cyphus or Peter. Another say, we follow Christ. We see this in verse 12. And amongst us, we might say, well, I follow Keller. I love the way that he thinks and writes. Oh, I follow Bethel. I want stardust and, and I want gold teeth. And others would say, well, I follow PJ Smythe. But, but in... They were like, there were divisions amongst us. They were dividing about who they were following. And Paul thought them very worldly, mere infants in Christ. Ben Davis is a, my spiritual father, your father-in-law, and also a spiritual dad. If he looked me in the eye and he said, Sean, you are very worldly. You're a mere infant in Christ. I mean, that would devastate me. Because he knows me, he loves me. He shaped me enormously. I mean, this is Paul saying to this church, you are mere infants in Christ. You are very worldly. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. There was sexual immorality among this church that didn't even occur amongst the pagans. A man had his father's wife. And incredibly, the church was proud of this. This is chapter 5, verse 2. You're thinking, is this really in the Bible? That's why I'm giving you the references. And that wasn't the end of all the issues in this church. They had disagreements that resulted in ongoing lawsuits against one another. We see this in chapter 6, verse 7. So rather than following Matthew 18, you know, when someone upsets you, you just talk to them one-to-one, don't involve everybody else. And if they don't listen to you, then get one or two other witnesses alongside you and resolve it that way. And if that doesn't work, tell the church. If they don't listen to the church, treat them as a tax, you know, as an unbeliever. 
Rather than do that, they take out lawsuits against one another. That's how deep the divisions were amongst this church. It was, it was a disaster. They were using shrine prostitutes. In, in Corinth at that time, it said that the, the, the goddess Aphrodite, she had her own temple. There's apparently a thousand prostitutes servicing them. You worship there through ritual sex. And people in the church were using shrine prostitutes through the week. And yet, they were unclear about the role of sex within marriage. Chapter 7, verse 3. So they're massive, because I said it was sexually immoral, thousand fine prostitutes, uh, shrine prostitutes, so they're using ritual sex midweek, joining themselves with prostitutes, and they were saying, in marriage, I don't know, I don't know if I need to make love to you. You're my wife, you're your husband, I'm not sure we need to make love. And Paul has to teach into that. They were confused about whether they could buy meat sacrificed to idols, or what they should do if their unbelieving friend invites them to dinner, and when they invite them to dinner, then say, oh, I know you're a Christian, just so you know, that meat has been sacrificed to an idol. Just letting you know. And what do we do? It was cheaper there, but they're trying to be part of Corinth, not part of Corinth. Am I going to be polluted? What happens there? They were theologically confused at this point. Their church gatherings had no sense of order or honour. During communion, and we're going to have that later, and we can see if this goes on or not, they didn't wait for each other, and those who had nothing were humiliated. So the rich would come, they would sit over in the corner, they'd have food and wine, enough to get drunk, and they had no regard for their poor brothers and sisters, probably the slaves, no regard for them. They'd sit over there, they had nothing, and they were just getting drunk. And this was in their church meetings. Some were getting drunk, others were getting hungry. It just touches me when the poor are overlooked. When this, this is the church, okay? This is not crazy Corinth. This is a, how a church had got to within a few years of Paul leaving. In fact, Paul said that their meetings did more harm than good. 11 verse 17. That was his conclusions of their Saturday gatherings, Sunday gatherings, whenever they were gathering. Your meetings do more harm than good. That's not even an exhausted list of some of the issues that Paul has to address in the book of 1 Corinthians. So when I say this is Paul at his diplomatic best, what I'm saying is this is the most encouraging thing that Paul can honestly say. He can say other things, they just wouldn't be true. This is the most encouraging thing that Paul can honestly say is to remind them that they have freely received God's grace, that they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, even though they used that gift to quarrel and divide. Greeks love knowledge and wise speech, and they used those gifts to quarrel and divide and to argue. You know, regardless of all their moral, their relational, and their theological failings, hear this, church. Paul was confident that they would be sustained to the end, that they would be found guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anyone else feel their shoulders dropping now? And what is the basis of this confidence? Because they were a great church, because they had everything straightened out, because they had great Sunday meetings, their communion was excellent, clearly not. Their confidence was because God is faithful. Yes. It is God <coughs> who is faithful. 
by whom you are called into the fellowship, into the partnership of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Corinthians may not be faithful, but God is. They do not lack any spiritual gift from God. They've got the complete set because God is faithful. They were sexually immoral. They were argumentative. They were divisive. If we're honest, we would say they're chaotic and confused. Yet Paul wants them to know. He wants them to be assured that they will be sustained to the end because God is good. That they will be found guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're honest, that is scandalous. It is, isn't it? That is scandalous to write. But that is grace. Because they are recipients of God's grace. And because of that, there's three things I felt the Spirit wanted to underline to you today. Three things. And I'm delighted that Tom and Howard brought their prophetic words because I'm sitting there thinking, this is incredible what they're now saying because I'm going to say the same thing. Number one, friends, let's start with grace. Paul starts this letter to this crazy, broken church that we would be horrified, that we would never join. He starts with grace. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The unearned, unmerited, unending favour given you in Christ Jesus. Grace isn't a concept. Grace is a person. It's Jesus God's unearned, unmerited, unending favour is personified in Jesus. Paul, the persecutor of the church of God, who describes himself as the worst of sinners, met Christ on a road to Damascus, received grace, and his new life got started. Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler of Corinth, born into law, but received grace through faith in Christ Jesus. He's now caught up in the mission of God. He's with Paul in Ephesus. But it started for Sosthenes with grace, with the preaching of Christ. The Corinthians too had received grace. And they were not lacking any gift as they waited for the revealing of Jesus. And we too started with grace. And friends, we must continue with grace. We are saved by grace We are being saved by grace and we will be saved by grace. By grace, we are now hidden in Christ Jesus. And no power, no person, no folly, no habits can remove us from his favour. I mean, it was an incredible picture, as Howard said, about the snow falling upon our lives, covering all things. And the good news is that there's never going to be a thaw of God's grace. That snow is never going to be melted. We know it's temporary. We know we can run over it and we can mess it all up. But there's something about being hidden in Christ Jesus, being so associated with Christ Jesus. When God the Father looks at us, it's as if we've been Velcroed into Christ. And there's, you just can't be torn away from us. There's no daylight between us. There's nothing we can do to peel ourselves off Christ. We are now hidden in Christ Jesus. Yes. And there's nothing we can add to that. We certainly can't take anything away from that. And it is scandalous. 
It's scandalous. And so when Howard stands up and talks about snow and, and, and the, the, the love of God, the grace of God falling upon us and covering over, it really is true. It, it was true for this crazy church and it's true for us. And just very quickly now, if you felt that Howard's prophetic word or you feel that this starting with grace and continuing with grace is something that needs to be underlined in your life right now, can you just put your hand up now? Come on, just put your hand up. There's no shame in this. God is here amongst us. Just a few people. Come on, clear. Come on, I, I, honestly, I feel that God wants you just to put your hand up nice and clear. Is it just, is it, was there anyone put their hand up at all? This is like a response moment now. Just that you're active. You're supposed to be participating, be sanctified. Can you stand where you are now? Because I want to pray for you. Listen, there's no shame in this. You just feel it in your life that you want this, I'm going to start with grace. I want that underlined in my life. And I want to stand with that. I want to identify with that. Yeah, that's me. I want to be a person of grace. My standing before God is because of grace. Nothing else. That's my starting point for that. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who've stood now. I pray that you'd give them fresh understanding of your grace. That they would know that uh, no power, that no folly, uh, that no decisions or habits can ever remove them from your presence. That your grace is truly irresistible and robust. I want to pray for a joy, a delight in grace, even now, a fresh understanding, a confidence in the scandal of grace. That's where we started and that's where we will keep continuing, the scandal of grace, to lean into it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, can you sit down? The first thing, I really felt the Spirit wanted to align, underline to us that we start with grace. And number two, grace is not without effect. That grace is not without effect. Paul started his letter reminding them that they were recipients of grace. That their assurance is based on God's faithfulness, not their performance, not them getting it right, not doing a Bible in the year or devotional time, five out of seven days, none of that. It's on God's faithfulness that he will sustain you to the end. He will. That you will be found guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is faithful. He has made a way. But the truth is, Paul does get to the stuff that was incompatible to holy living. The lifestyle choices, the old ways of thinking and patterns of behaviour that needed to change. The church in Corinth was embroiled. It was embroiled in controversy. They had arguments and factions. There was sexual immorality. There was literally drunkenness at church meetings. Later on, Paul goes on in Corinthians to talk about envy and rivalry and pride with its thousand faces of boasting and rudeness and self-seeking about being quick to anger, of keeping a record of wrongs, of delighting in evil. Grace is not without effect. It goes on to deal with things like division and elitism, and elitism around preferences, nothing more. People feel superior because of their preferences. About being stumbling blocks to believers with a weak conscience. All of that needs to be repented of in the light of God's love. Idolatry 
putting things or people in the place of God, that your identity, your sense of purpose, where you're using, where you're investing your time and energy, idolatry, sexual activity outside of marriage, all needs to be repented of in light of God's grace. You've got to get to that stuff. We start with grace, yes, but Paul had to speak into the, the kerfuffle, the mess, the chaos, the brokenness, the pain, the sin, the rebellion. We need to get to that stuff. Because of grace, we need to get to that. Because of grace, we need to repent, to confess, to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction, a real change of direction to, to those old habits of thoughts and behaviours that are simply incompatible with the scandal of grace. It's not compatible. I, I, I walk away from that. It's breaking me. It's not good for me. So I'm delighted when Tom stands up and he, he sees a desk with a pile of paper on there and our lives are written and we want the next piece of paper on top there. So actually our hidden lives, they're all hidden. We just want people to see the top copy. And yet the Spirit of God comes and blows in and, and suddenly our inner lives are exposed for all to see. But God is kind and gracious and he does that in a way that doesn't reveal us but says, us, I want to deal with your inner world. And I feel even now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you just feel, I'm not going to ask you to expose yourself, but you know that grace is not without effect. And there's stuff in your life, and maybe I've put the finger on it by just listing just a few of the things caught up in the book of Corinthians that you know that you need to confess, that you need to own up to. I know many of you are in threes, or if you're not, you've got someone close to you that you can confess to and say, there's an area of my life that grace needs to get to that I need to own and repent and I need to keep a short account to that I might see victory in this area. This needs to change. The sexual immorality, the drunkenness, the envy, the pride, the lawsuits, the nonsense going on in Corinth needed to be dealt with by grace. And it's the same for you, for me. So if you feel the Spirit, even this morning, is putting a finger on something that grace is not without effect and needs to start taking effect in an area of your life, can you put your hand up now, please? Come on. Come on. I haven't come all the way from Reading, hung around last night for just a few people. Really, that's all that's going on. Just a few people. I'm going to ask you to, but can you stand now, please? Because I'm going to pray for you that grace will take effect in your life. Some of you are so fearful at this point. Listen, no one's going to judge you. At the moment, they're rejoicing. The Holy Spirit is putting things on your life. They're tender to what the Spirit is saying. Just rejoice for these brothers and sisters. They're growing in Christ. The Holy Spirit is putting a finger on an area of their life. They just want a grace to come in. They see transformation. Is there anyone else? You just want to stand now. Come on. Is there anyone else? You want to stand now? Excellent. Come on, we're doing business with God this morning. Grace is not without effect. Holy Spirit, I pray for my brothers and sisters. For those of us who started with grace, I pray that grace would continue its effect in the area of our lives. We want to see change. We want to repent, confess, have a change of heart and actions to these areas. We want to be changed from one degree of glory to another. We thank you for moments like this when you put, as it were, your finger on our lives, you underline an area of our lives that you want to get to now because of grace. And you will equip us by your Holy Spirit for change. That we will be changed from one degree to another. We thank you that you are at work even now. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are around, just look around now. If you're in a three, if someone in your three is standing up now, talk to them gently. First of all, commend them and say, do you need to talk to me or not? 
And for those of you who stand up, you're now modelling to them what they will need to do soon. Because no one in this room is sorted. The only person was was Jesus. This is their moment. This is your moment. Their moment is coming. So lead them now to courageously do it. Because they're going to have to do this soon. Because God is at work amongst you. Last thing. We want to start with grace. Grace is not without effect. And I want you to get this as well. There are many in this city. There are many in this city. Corinth was a cosmopolitan, socially liberal, religiously tolerant, sexually immoral, thriving seaport. The known world travelled through Corinth. That is not a description that easily fits your town. Corinth was a cosmopolitan, socially liberal, religiously tolerant, sexually immoral, thriving seaport. That doesn't easily fit with your town. Cheltenham is more associated with its spas, Regency architecture and your cultural festivals. I did a quick scan on Wikipedia. I was amazed at how many cultural festivals you have, given your size. (laughs) Corinth had the biannual Ithmian Games which was wrestling and an early form of no holds barred or no rules cage fighting. That was the Isthmian Games. It was rough and ready. You sent your champions, not your literary champions, your fighting champions. You've got the gold cup at the race course next month, which you all dress up and one or two horses run around. I mean, the contrast between no rules cage fighting and the gold cup spectacle is quite dramatic. Cheltenham is no Corinth. But you know and I know, when you look a little bit closer, the world does go through Cheltenham, if only through GCHQ's building. (laughs) Albeit in a hidden way. It's on Wikipedia, everyone knows. (laughs) We know that behind the elegant facades of Cheltenham's buildings and your tree-lined avenues are lies broken by pride, lies broken by envy, by greed, idolatry, Sin, immorality, essentially rebellion to God. That's essentially. Paul, when he was in Corinth one night, we see this in Acts 18, verse 9 to 10. He's in Corinth one night, and then Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision. And he says to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. For I have many in this city who are my people. God had many people still to be one for the gospel in Corinth. And Paul, therefore, would not be prevented from continuing his work until God's purposes are complete. The divine knowledge of success for the gospel in Corinth was to fortify Paul in his proclamation and his gospel activities. And I sense, as I was praying for you early in the week, that the Spirit wants to underline this verse 2, Acts 18, verse 10. Underline it in your Bibles or on your phone that God would say to you, Jesus would say to you, I have many in this city who are my people. 
And this first is to fortify you in your missional communities. If you're in a missional community here today, these verses are to fortify you. They are to strengthen you. They are to embolden you. They are to compel you in your activities, in your Sunday gatherings, and in your personal witnessing of Christ to your friends and colleagues and neighbours and family. That this verse is to guard your heart against cynicism and unbelief. For seven years now, I've been part of a triathlon club, and as far as I can tell, no one's come to faith. And I'm getting really disheartened. And two weeks ago, I felt the Spirit talk to me and to many others about the cynicism that has developed in my heart about the gospel of Jesus Christ is now unable to penetrate the lives of fellow triathletes in Reading. And I was cynical about that. I think I'm going to keep witnessing, but actually the gospel isn't able to penetrate their hearts as it has done for mine, as it has done for my many friends, as I see it's done in Corinth. And I felt the Holy Spirit caused me to repent of that cynicism, to identify it in my life and to repent of it because the gospel is powerful and God is active and I am witnessing. I had a, a word of knowledge from some from our prophetic team and uh, it was just telling me that there is fruitfulness from what I'm doing and that flies in the face of my experience over the last seven to eight years. But I am believing that there are many people in the city for me to win in Reading and for you to win here in Cheltenham. The mission of God that brought Paul to Corinth and Howard to Cheltenham is still burning bright. I want to say that again. The mission of God that brought Paul to Corinth and Howard to Cheltenham is still burning bright. There are many in the city who are Jesus' people. Cheltenham is neither too small for God to be interested in, neither is Cheltenham too elegant or sophisticated for Jesus to reach. And God first is not supposed to be growing just through Christians new to the area or Christians without a home. He has unbelievers in mind to fill these seats. I feel that God wanted to underline that with you. So long as you're clear that you start with grace and that grace is not without effect and then you are to believe that there are many in this city that God first would grow through salvation. But I'm... I feel the Spirit would say to you, you have as much cynicism and unbelief about your friends being saved as I did. So I'm going to give you an opportunity now. If you believe this morning that even though you can see the massive transformation that happened in Corinth and maybe the massive transformation that took part in your life and yet you've got unbelief and cynicism for your friends, for your colleagues, for your families, for your neighbours because the last few years seem to say something else. If you are like me and you want to identify with that cynicism and to publicly stand against that, I want you to stand right now because you're aware of cynicism and unbelief. But we believe Jesus has many in this town who are his, who at the moment are far from Christ, outside the gospel of Jesus, and they're to be gathered into his church of God in, in Cheltenham. Part of that is God first. So, Father, we want to stand and acknowledge that we have known unbelief and cynicism in our life that your gospel uh, is good and and saving people even now. And we want to repent, we want to have a change of heart to our unbelief that the gospel is still saving people. That as we witness, as we bear fruit, as we proclaim, that people will be saved. We come against our experience, our disappointments, our setbacks, the rejection that we have felt, the fear we've known, the things we have said, things we should have said, we turn from all of that and we say, Jesus, we trust you, we repent of that, we know that Jesus, you're building your church, 
that you will sustain us, we'll be found guiltless in the end, and we believe that is applicable to us and to those in this city who are yours. And so with confidence, fortified by this truth, we want to leave changed, we want to repent of unbelief and cynicism and embrace faith and confidence in what you are doing, Jesus. We want to partner with you. We believe we've been sanctified, set apart, made holy for a purpose, and that is to have you central to our lives and to bear witness to you into our town. We believe we're alive for such a time as this, to bring Christ to those around us, for us to prepare his bride for his return. We want to play our part actively within that. So we pray for everyone here now. Come, be at work amongst us. In the name of Jesus, amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.